Welcome to the Sanctions Space podcast. I am Justine Walker, Head of Global Sanctions and Risk at ACAMS. This series brings you the stories behind sanctions. What are the trends? Who are the key people? And how do the threads of the past shape future thinking? Joining me today are two people who have for many years been at the forefront of US sanctions and illicit finance policy. Jennifer Fowler, Director with Brunswick Group. Jennifer was the US Treasury's Deputy Assistant Secretary for Terrorist Financing and Financial Crimes and also served as the Vice President of the Financial Action Task Force. Also here today is a very familiar figure to many, John Smith, former Director of OFAC and now co-head of Morrison and Forrester's National Security Practice. So it's really a podcast of the three J's today. Jennifer, John, welcome. Thank you, Justine. It's great to be here. Agree, Justine. Happy to be here with you and Jennifer. Thanks, both of you. So we're recording this podcast the day before President-elect Joe Biden's inauguration. What will be happening in the U.S. Treasury building offices just now and over the coming weeks? You know, I really want to hear about what does transition mean for policy officials, what I would call civil servants. Is this a nervous time for them? Jennifer, maybe you can help enlighten us. Yeah, thank you, Justine. This isn't a technical term, but I would describe transition as, you know, a really weird time. (laughs) It's like you come in the building on January 21st and everyone you're used to seeing walking around the halls or having meetings with is gone or not everyone, but, you know, the senior leadership. Even though there's a lot that goes into it and a lot of work behind the scenes to make the transition successful, it feels abrupt because all of a sudden those people are gone you know, there'll be quite a bit of time before new senior policy leaders and new leadership are confirmed. And in that period of time, civil servants and people like John and me, they'll need to step up into new roles, take on even more additional responsibility. And that can be really nerve wracking too, um, because you want to make sure that everything that has to be done is taken care of. And then at the same time, once you get your new leadership in place, there's a nerve wracking period of briefing them and getting to know them, understanding their style, making sure you put your best foot forward. So it can be really nerve wracking. It's a challenging time, I think. So John, your thoughts on this? I'd agree with Jennifer. It's scary, exciting, surreal. OFAC has a very different perspective, though. It's a completely career civil servant agency, including up to the director. So the OFAC building that sits across from Main Treasury is completely the same. Nothing changes in the building. Nobody leaves. Everybody stays. Then you go to the Main Treasury building right across the street. And as Jennifer said, you see a lot of empty offices with people that you used to work with. And it's an exciting time because you know that a new administration is coming in with new priorities. But it's also a nerve-wracking time because you have a whole set of uh, bosses that are going to be new that you won't know. And you're going to do your best to please them going forward. John, I wanted to just ask, I mean, you've talked about sort of the OFAC side of this. And I mean, it's been staggering the amount of sanctions designations we've seen just recently. The Center for New America Security, CNAS, produced their sanctions figures, which showed over 22% of 2020 sanctions designations came after the November presidential election up until the end of the year. How will this be impacting transition preparations? Does it have any impact? It has a tremendous impact. This is unprecedented what has happened in the past few months since the election. 
I served four presidents, and in every transition, basically, activity largely stopped except for what had to go forward, and you spent your time working with the transition team to make sure that the new administration was up to speed. Obviously, the Trump administration has done everything they can to ensure that their legacy is set in stone as much as possible with major sanctions actions up until the very last day, including today. So this will impact because OFAC and other career civil servants are continuing to take action for an administration that walks out the door tomorrow instead of preparing for an administration that comes in the door tomorrow. Gosh, it is a really interesting time. As you say, just leaving this slightly aside, let's just focus a bit more about your experiences of holding senior government positions. And Jennifer, for many years, you were a key figure within the US delegation to FATF, the Global Standards Setter for Anti-Money Laundering and Countering the Financing of Terrorism. Very briefly, how would you describe the FATF journey and its evolution? FATF really is an amazing task force is in the name organization, um, however you want to describe it. But I think task force is the best way to describe it because it is something that's pretty flexible and tries to be responsive to emerging trends. It's really recently celebrated a 30-year anniversary. It started with the G7 and now virtually every country in the world endorses the FATF standards. So that's quite an amazing journey over 30 years. FATF has done an enormous amount to make sure that countries have the right laws and regulations on the books, and that's how countries are assessed. But we're now in a time where FATF is really pushing beyond that and really looking about how effective those laws and regulations are, which is a really challenging thing to try to do and to try to hold a countries accountable for and to try to measure. It's, it's incredibly challenging, but it's the most important part of it. How effective are we at combating money laundering and terrorist financing? That's a, an enormous undertaking, and I think FATF's done an amazing job at evolving in that direction while keeping up with all of the new emerging things that we need to be on top of from you know, the explosion of digital currencies on the scene, and that didn't exist, obviously, 30 years ago, to really stretching into different threat areas like proliferation finance. So being able to do all of those things with so many different countries around a table that have so many different interests is incredible. And John, from your point of view, you know, sometimes sanctions and anti-money laundering can appear a little bit segmented. For you, what has been the main OFAC FATF nexus? OFAC FATF Nexus was primarily the FATF recommendation that focused on targeted financial sanctions. And I was privileged on a few occasions to be invited by Jennifer and her team to attend the FATF plenaries and other sessions to talk about the need to coordinate it on targeted financial sanctions and the standards that should be used and how countries should be judged. And it's important to have a body like the FATF that can evaluate countries on a periodic basis to ensure that they're complying with all the recommendations, including those that are so near and dear to my heart on sanctions. Great. And, you know, and this FATF table is a very big table. In fact, when you're in the room, it's a big table with many rows behind it. There's many people crowded in. It's truly international. Jennifer, looking back, what has been the standout achievement of FATF? And if you were to go back to the FATF table, what would you change? For me, it's not one standout achievement. I think the achievement really is how FATF works together on so many different things and how the countries work together. Because as you said, it's a very large room and there's so many people involved in so many countries around the table. But to have community like that 
FATF colleagues become really good at working together and finding consensus on difficult topics, but they also become friends and socialize together and I think develop relationships that are really critical to being able to overcome really, really difficult challenges in the room itself. So all of those things are so unique to FATF and part of what makes it work and makes it different from other organizations. And I don't know if it's because, you know, people that are at FATF are sort of extreme technicians, technical experts, and they only, uh, they kind of speak the same language and, and not a lot of other people speak that language. It's not, I'm not sure what is the glue that holds it all together. It's always been a fun group. You meet people that you want to work with, but also you just kind of want to find out more about them and how did they get to this place and have that seat in the room and, and why are they so passionate about that illicit finance? So it's just an incredible group of people. You know, you're asking me what I would change, and I, I just don't, I don't think I would change it. I mean, it's like Mary, you know, fattest like Mary Poppins, perfect in every way. I don't think I could really recommend a, a, or think of a change I would make. I have to say I'm so impressed with the work that the current president is doing, Marcus Plyer, and the secretariat, because they've really pushed the boundaries a bit and brought FATF into, you know, they're using social media more, they're communicating what they're doing in a way that FATF has not traditionally done. And I think it's so important. They're really pushing FATF into this new era of the way we all communicate and work together. So I just think they're doing great things. So FATF is Mary Poppins. You know, I think this is just going to stay with me now for, for years to come. I'm going to want to see everybody dancing with umbrellas. But I'm going to ask John on this. John, FATF, is it Mary Poppins? What do you think? It's hard to follow a Mary Poppins comment from Jennifer, <laughs> but I will say that it is truly a unique achievement because I worked at the United Nations uh, for a period of time and in other global bodies where you would see countries that would come in and they would say, I have instructions and they would block things. There wasn't a lot of explanation to it and you could see procedures and processes that just stopped. And somehow FATF avoided that by working together, maybe as Jennifer said, because it was viewed as a technical body that flew under the radar in some ways. But it truly is remarkable achievement that they were able to achieve so much when many of the governments involved may have had very different views on some of the fundamental terrorist financing and proliferation financing issues that the FATF confronted. You know, and I think that's such a great point, John, and I would really echo that as well. The type of cooperation you see in FATF can look really different to some of the really challenging conversations you see at the UN level. But Jennifer, I want to come back to you because you were one of a handful of women in senior leadership positions, both at Treasury and FATF. Thinking about women in compliance, how important is it to see females at the helm? You know, what do you feel about this area? Well, I think it's important in AML-CFT, just like it's important everywhere, because, you know, women tend to bring a different point of view, but have in a way of looking at things and, and dealing with uh, problems, especially in the area of risk, I think that's a little different. And they can bring a lot of different points of view, I think, to bear in one issue. I think in AML-CFT, what we've traditionally seen is, you know, it has been, I think, very male-dominated. But when you look around the room at FATF and also at Treasury, 
so many of the ranks of the positions there are filled with women now. And so it's really a lot of really talented women that are interested in this field and doing the jobs. So getting those people to the very senior roles is really important to really reflect the experience they have and to bring that to use to provide leadership to other people. I used to have a lot of meetings when I was in my position at Treasury with foreign governments and uh, their delegations from their Treasury or their FIU And I was always stunned at how many young women were part of those delegations who clearly wanted to be in the field, were in the positions. And I think you're looking at a whole cadre of women that are very well prepared to take on leadership jobs from now forward. I would echo that. And actually, John, it's interesting. When you left OFAC, your successor is actually a female as well. So we're seeing some great female leadership come into sort of fun position here. But John, just changing things slightly, in your role as OFAC director, you oversaw every enforcement case against financial institutions and global operating companies. Can you just say very quickly a few words around how the enforcement landscape has changed? Is it a lot more innovative than it used to be? I think it is more innovative in many respects. I think for many years, enforcement at OFAC had focused on kind of your routine cigar carrying tourists from Cuba. And there were a lot of focus on numbers of cases that you could close in the enforcement landscape. And then I think under Adam Zubin, the agency broadened its perspective. And that was the era of many of the major bank cases involving wire stripping that we saw kind of across the globe. And while those cases are largely petering out, I think you've seen OFAC broaden its focus, not just from financial institutions, but global operating companies, and really almost in setting standards of expectations. So it's moved from just uh, the strict liability regime where it can punish without proving intent, but it's really in the past few years focused on setting industry standards, putting out compliance recommendations, putting out maritime guidance, and then following up on that with enforcement cases. And as OFAC would say, better compliance through enforcement. So that setting of standards, do you think the OFAC is the FATF of sanctions compliance then? I would get in trouble if I said that, because the, the <laughs> nice thing about the FATF is it's an international organization where a number of countries come together, and we don't have that same standard-setting body focused on sanctions in particular. So OFAC plays that leading role coming from the United States, and it certainly tries to encourage similar compliance methods around the world. But there is that difference that OFAC is a US-based agency. While it tries its best to put out some global standards, it's not the same as a FATF that's a truly global entity. Well, I think that's a good accurate summary, John. But I think you know we cannot dispute just how important OFAC is in setting standards for sanctions compliance. Absolutely. Just exploring this global risk environment a bit, you have both been so central in the US response to really challenging national security and foreign policy situations. With all the years of professional experience you have, which has covered so many security challenges, which have been the ones which have been most challenging to formulate a response to? Jennifer, do you want to just share some thoughts here first? Yeah, sure. There are so many. But I think the one that really stands out for me uh, was a Russia-Crimea situation. That was challenging because it was an issue that we really 
we hadn't confronted that type of issue before a treasury in that the U.S. and the Russian economies were so interlinked and developing a response to that was challenging for that reason. It was just a bit different than addressing North Korea and Iran issues, which are, of course, so challenging in so many different ways as well. But for me, looking back, I felt like that was the most difficult one to really push ourselves to go outside of our usual approach. And, you know, we developed something with colleagues in other parts of Treasury that was, I think, very unique and a different approach than we'd taken in the past. And so all of that, I felt like was very innovative. And, you know, we can debate how effective it was and what was achieved. But the development of different types of sanctions is always challenging. And that was a place where we very quickly developed something new that we could bring into the way that we deal with these kinds of challenges in the future. And John, for you, which has been the most challenging to formulate a response to, and of course, you know, the OFAC response is different in many ways, but you know, for you, where's the challenge really been? The toughest part in this podcast has been talking after Jennifer because she completely <laughs> stole my Russia answer. So well, you can no, share it. The, we can both have that. <laughs> I knew you were going to say Russia. I, guess. I have a good backup. Is For me, the other challenging one is when ordinary people's lives were at stake. And there were a number of sanctions regimes where humanitarian consequences were coming to the fore and you were damned if you do and damned if you don't in terms of, for example, a terrorist organization holding a grip on a wide swath of territory and you want to stop the terrorist organization. But if you do, humanitarian supplies can't go into the region. So either you empower the terrorist organization more when you let payments be made by those bringing in the food or you stop the food from going in and the people directly suffer. And there were no good answers in questions like that and in issues like that. And they're replicated time after time from a Somalia to a Syria to Sudan to elsewhere where there's conflict. And I think when there are lives at stake, those have been sometimes the toughest for me. You know, I I really understand that response as well. And John, I'm going to stay with you for the next few years. What does the sanctions geopolitical environment look like? What should people be getting ready for? I think it was uh, prescient for Jennifer to mention Russia in the last question response, because I think right now, when you see increasing conflict between the United States and China, and there will be renewed Uh, sanctions conflict uh, between the United States and Russia, I think people should prepare for some very difficult times ahead where the world's number one and number two economies when it comes to the United States and China will continue to fundamentally disagree on certain issues involving human rights and democratic principles, and that will continue to play a role in U.S. sanctions response at the same time that there will be increasing appetite in the United States Congress and the administration to hold Russia accountable for some of the hacks on the US government as well as elsewhere. So I think people should plan on a rough road ahead in a sanctions landscape, but perhaps a more cooperative one between the United States and its traditional partners in Europe and elsewhere. And Jennifer, does that reflect your thoughts or there's anything further you would add to that? No, I think John's exactly right. It's going to be a very interesting and challenging time. And I'm excited to kind of see how it all unfolds, frankly. 
So finally, my last question, and I want to return to the inauguration theme, you know, any parting words of wisdom for those civil servants, government officials who over the coming weeks will brief a whole new set of political masters? What is your takeaway words of wisdom for them? Jennifer first. Oh, gosh, I feel nervous to even offer words of wisdom. But I would say just a reminder that what they're doing is very, very important. It's something that we all are grateful for. You know, you have people in place who have become the deep experts on these issues and really have the institutional knowledge and will be there to provide some continuity, even though it's a very challenging time. It's a time that they can really rise to the top in terms of providing a a real service to the country. So I think I would wish them good luck and understand that many of us are very grateful for what they're doing. John, your thoughts? I'd echo Jennifer's words, and I'd also add that Treasury has a proud tradition of honesty and bluntness between those career civil servants and the political officials who come in. There are no yes men or women at the Treasury Department in terms of just simply looking to please their leadership while you always want to make your boss happy, you always go in with the view of these are the facts and this is then what you can use to make policy. And I just encourage the career civil servants who have been so brave and tough over these last many years to continue that proud tradition as they uphold what is a lofty mission for the United States sanctions agency to implement and enforce in pursuit of national security and foreign policy objectives. Jennifer, John, thank you both so much. I do hope listeners have enjoyed this podcast. It has been a podcast of the three J's. Please do sign up as we move around the world to hear the stories behind sanctions. I am Justine Walker with ACAMS. Thank you to everyone for joining us today.